The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The Battle of Chancellorsville in May 1863 is remembered for many reasons. As Lee's greatest victory, for the death of Stonewall Jackson, as another in the string of defeats suffered by the Army of the Potomac, and as the site of the downfall of Joseph Hooker. Today's guest, Professor Christian Keller of the U.S. Army Command and Staff College, has one more. Chancellorsville was the turning point for German-American participation in the Union war effort. We'll talk about Dr. Keller's book, Chancellorsville and the Germans, Nativism, Ethnicity, and Civil War Memory, today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a gray Friday afternoon in November 2009. It's the middle or near the end now of football season, and I'm speaking to you from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But as always, not speaking for the university, nor will my guest uh, speak for his institution. Uh, We're always doing our own thing here as ever. Well, as ever, thanks to uh, uh, those of you who have sent in requests for particular people to appear on the show. That is always welcome, and we've had some of them on in the last few weeks. A word of explanation or apology for there being no shows the last two weeks. Uh, Two weeks ago, it was just the pressure of the day job. There was simply no time to prepare uh, a show with all that is going on uh, on campus as we go through. Uh, the different things that need to be done, administering the department, teaching the classes, and uh, complaining to to one another about the state of the world, as faculty members will do. And there was also, uh, and then last week there was uh, just a snafu, the kind of thing that causes a brigade not to show up on the flank where it's supposed to in battle after battle. It happens at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters as well. The guest was ready, I was ready, every uh, studio was ready, but we weren't already in the same place at the same time, so we had no show. 
We'll be back uh, with that show uh, in in a few weeks. I apologize for that uh, breakdown. But we're back now, uh, continuing on with new shows. The uh, uh, those of you who have suggestions, please continue to send them in. They're always welcome. And if you're interested in contributing to the show, sending uh, uh, sending some cash this way to help buy books for the Civil War Talk Radio Library, that's always welcome too. Donations can be sent to Civil War TR at AOL.com using the miracle of PayPal. I'll be happy to send you a copy of All for the Regiment or Did Lincoln Own Slaves? Uh, if you are interested in getting that for your donation. Well, this week we have as our guest uh, Dr. Christian Keller from the U.S. Army uh, Command and Staff College. Uh, Dr. Keller, are you there? I am. Wonderful. Uh, as we've been writing to each other informally, can I call you Chris? Absolutely, uh, please. And please call me Jerry. Uh, well, I'm happy to have you on the show, partly because it's always a challenge to track down people who are teaching at a military institution. <laughs> uh, Ethan Rafuse was on last year, and it was like uh, breaking into Fort Knox to find his email address, and yours was not much easier. Um, what's, what's going, what are you guys doing there that is so secret? <laughs> well, history is, is not secret uh, once it becomes uh, history. Uh, but uh, some of the things that uh, we teach at the Command and General Staff College, both at Fort Leavenworth and uh, at the satellite campuses uh, where I teach, uh, I think sometimes Uncle Sam would rather that they, they not be made public, and uh, email addresses apparently fall under that category as well, and uh, uh, it's just a kind of need-to-know basis, I'm afraid. Uh, now, I mean, a- as an academic, does that handicap you if somebody wants you to speak at a conference and they can't get hold of you? It seems like that'd be a problem. Well, of late, what what happens is they contact my publisher, uh, in this case Fordham, or with my first book, uh, Stackpole, and the publisher has uh, my private email address, and they usually write to that, and uh, then I'm able to respond uh, to any queries through that method. Uh, but it always uh, it always seems to work. People who really are persistent will be rewarded. Well, that that in in your case, I found you were speaking at uh, I think in West Virginia recently. That's correct. And uh, I, I heard all kinds of good things, and I I called the library where you had been, and they were kind enough to give me the contact information that you'd shared with them. So so that's that's how I broke through the veil. But, uh, <laughs> um, well, how did you get to uh, to where you said you were at a, a satellite uh, campus? That's in Virginia. Well, yes, we're at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. Uh, the uh, U.S. Army Command and General Staff College is based at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. It's been there for a very long time, uh, but in the last administration, it was decided that uh, every uh, field grade officer uh, was required to go through. Uh, the Command and General Staff College course, at least the uh, the basic part of that, which is called intermediate level education. And uh, in order for that goal to be accomplished, uh, the uh, Department of Defense opened up the satellite campuses at uh, Fort Belvoir, Fort Lee, and at Fort Gordon, Georgia. And we just opened up a new one at Redstone Arsenal down in Alabama. And uh, in each of these locations, there are many Fort Leavenworths uh, with the same departments, and we teach the same curriculum as they do at Leavenworth, and we like to think we have better students. 
Well, tell me a bit about the curriculum. What what does uh, an officer learn going through this course? Well, uh, we teach them uh, several different uh, uh, subjects. Uh, they have a tactics, a leadership, a logistics, uh, a uh, joint and multinational operations, and then finally a, hi- a history curriculum. And they have to get passing grades in all of those uh, subjects in order to be uh, given a diploma. Uh, this is considered uh, their graduate-level education. It is uh, the last formal formal military education many of them will receive uh, in their careers. Uh, those who go on to the war college have to go through our course first. So we're the step below the uh, the National War Colleges, which I'm sure some of the uh, listeners are familiar with. And uh, we prepare them for uh, uh, essentially brigade uh, level staff assignments and and even higher uh, responsibilities. And uh, in the history curriculum, which I'm responsible for, we emphasize lessons learned from uh, the great leaders uh, of the past, and we try very hard to get into their minds and into their decision making to inform our future military leaders. Uh, about uh, some of the situations that they may be facing themselves uh, in uh, not too long of a time. How, how do the students respond to this? Uh, I mean, I, I often have professors on and we'll talk about students responding to history classes, but yours must see themselves in these classes. Uh, it, they do. Uh, the students often will bring in very valuable insights from very recent deployments. Uh, they will immediately draw parallels uh, with events of the past and, and what they have just experienced in many cases. Uh, and that's the whole part. That's part of the whole process we're trying to uh, to uh, inculcate here, which is a sharing of ideas uh, of of recent as well as past lessons learned, drawing parallels between uh, the current operational environment and uh, uh, what has happened before, uh, both in conventional and unconventional wars and and uh, situations. And uh, it, it really is a pleasure teaching these, uh, uh, these officers. They're the best students I've ever had, hands down. There is a maturity level that, that uh, goes into this, but uh, there is a great thirst for knowledge uh, to better themselves among the vast majority of these young men and women, and it's a real privilege to serve them. How did you get this position? What, what was your own background and career before you got here? Well, I was a traditional academic, uh, Jerry, uh, for about 10 years before I, I took this position. I had taught throughout uh, southern Pennsylvania uh, at uh, Dickinson and Gettysburg and Shippensburg. Um, I got my Ph.D. at Penn State, and I was hoping to remain in the, in the Keystone State if I could, but uh, as I'm sure you're familiar with and some of our listeners, uh, academic politics and uh, simple scarcity of jobs ultimately uh, forced me to make some decisions, and uh, I uh, opted to uh, look into a career uh, with uh, the military and uh, uh, to see what what I could maybe do in in that area, and uh, it was the best decision that I've made for my career, to be quite honest with you. I've uh, just applied for uh, a position uh, in the uh, Department of Defense educational system at the very moment that the uh, satellite campuses were being opened. And so I was kind of lucky in the timing there, but uh, they're very careful who they select uh, for these these positions uh, in all the departments. And uh, they do prefer to have uh, individuals with PhDs who have uh, academic backgrounds for the history department. So I was very fortunate that uh, 
I was there, and they, they needed someone who worked on the Civil War, and uh, I fit the bill. <laughs> Well, that, that's uh, it's always good to have a happy ending to those kind of stories because you know we both know many people who uh, have struggled uh, in the job market and uh, continue to do so, even very highly qualified people. Do you, I, I'm curious about the environment there. Do you wear a uniform when teaching? Uh, my uniform is a coat and tie, just like uh, most uh, civilian instructors at, at universities and colleges. Um, we ask our students to wear their uh, active duty uniform. Um, and uh, only occasionally will we re- relent from that requirement, uh, generally days before uh, major holidays. Uh, but uh, we, we do take our dress seriously, uh, but it is civilian dress for the civilian instructors. And there's no problem. I, mean, I guess is there an issue with the students thinking perhaps uh, they are active duty, they've seen action in some cases, uh, and you're the pointy-head academic ivory tower guy. Do you get that response? Uh, I did uh, initially in my very first few months of, of teaching here. Um, I've been at uh, Fort Belvoir campus um, since it opened up uh, in the, uh, the end of uh, 2005, early 2006. And very quickly, you, you learn how to teach to these field-grade officers uh, they're they're not like undergrads, Jerry. So they are adult learners. So that's the first big difference that you have to master, and then you have to immediately uh, let them know that you respect and honor them for their service to the country, uh, and that requires uh, really not an awful lot of of uh, uh, not a leap of faith for me, but but what you do, I think, have to do uh, if you're coming from traditional academia and, and teaching for the army or for any of the the services. Uh, you've got to try to get into their mindset and uh, understand their context. Uh, it is different from ours, and um, that requires a little background research and asking questions uh, before uh, you jump into the position, and uh, you've got to be ready for it. They come with questions. They come with their own challenges, uh, but they are incredibly eager to learn. They respect the Ph.D., and they respect the fact that you are a subject matter expert and one of the good things that uh, their previous military training has definitely inculcated in them is a respect for specialists and for experts. So the fact that you have the Ph.D. is, uh, is definitely a, a feather in your cap, and that does ease the transition. Uh, it, it sounds like just a fascinating environment uh, in which to teach. Do you do staff rides? Do you take the students out down to Every the Every semester, and what a surprise, we go to Chancellorsville. <laughs> Well, that, that's a, a good segue here uh, to talk about your, your book on the Battle of Chancellorsville, which uh, is, is not just a standard battle study. Uh, there's nothing wrong, certainly, with a standard battle study, uh, uh, in my view. But, well, no, I take it back. There is something wrong with it, in my view. Uh, some of them are incredibly tedious when, when the, the, the battle is just described uh, purely in mechanical terms, who did what and when. Uh, there, there's a lot of appetite for it out there. For me, a little of it goes a long way. Um, one, one book on the first day at Gettysburg of 600 pages is pretty ample in my view. And I know a lot of listeners disagree with that, and they, would, they, they devour this. Um, your book is not that kind of battle study at all, but uh, really looks at Chancellorsville in a context. So I guess let's start at the beginning. Um, the Germans uh, of the 11th Corps are, are, of the Army of the Potomac are, are your focus. 
Can you talk about the German experience in the United States before the Civil War? Uh, absolutely, Jerry. Um, you do have to understand this context before you can really understand why uh, the Battle of Chancellorsville and the entire Civil War was such a, a moment of transition and, and testing uh, for uh, the Germans. Um, they were the largest ethnic group in uh, antebellum United States. Uh, they were the equivalent then of today's Hispanic population uh, in political power as well as in numbers. And so I, I want the listeners to understand that uh, this was just not a small little minority group. They were uh, very known and, and uh, very uh, visible to uh, 19th century America. Uh, before the Civil War, uh, there were several ways of, uh, of uh, immigration that came to America's shores from both Ireland and Germany. Uh, Scandinavia joined in this as well. But uh, the Germans and the Irish were the most representative of the uh, pre-Civil pre War uh, immigrant groups. And uh, they came for a variety of reasons. Um, in the case of the Irish, it was uh, uh, as a result of uh, dislocations uh, and uh, problems caused by the various famines, uh, which I'm sure we've heard of, uh, potato famines and, and so forth, uh, political problems that were associated with those as well. In the case of the Germans, it was uh, uh, economic and political reasons that motivated many to come over to the United States. Uh, they tended to come with um, a variety of means at their disposals. It, it depended on uh, where you came from. It depended on what your pre-war uh, occupation was, whether or not you landed in the United States with any means uh, to be able to build a life. Uh, just like the Irish, some Germans came with absolutely nothing and, and uh, had to start out as menial uh, laborers. Uh, some came with a substantial amount of education uh, or with uh, knowledge of a trade, uh, such as uh, brewing or uh, uh, baking or any, uh, any other number of, of uh, occupations. And uh, this would allow them then to uh, build quickly a, um, a profession on these shores, and uh, uh, they became very visible just by the fact uh, that they spoke a different language in the case of the Germans, and that made them very identifiable. And well, a lot of uh, Anglo-Americans at the time were, were concerned about this influx of foreign-speaking immigrants, uh, and if you combine that with the large numbers of Irish in our eastern and midwestern cities, uh, there was a, a phobia that developed among uh, many uh, Anglo-Americans uh, in the late 1840s into the 1850s, and we call this uh, the, um, the nativist movement. Um, it was manifested politically uh, by the Know-Nothings, or the American Party, which uh, very quickly and very powerfully rose to prominence in many Chris, of I'm the northern states. I'm going to step in for just a minute here. Yeah. If I can interrupt just for a second, we'll, we'll take a short break, uh, as we need to do periodically. But we'll come back and talk about nativism and the know-nothings and the role of the Germans. Our guest today is Professor Chris Keller. We'll be back in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. The Union defeat at Chancellorsville had many causes, but one group got all the blame. 
We'll learn more about this when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Most people lack any joy at work, yet most Americans spend over 60% of their waking lives working, much of it lifeless and burdensome. There is a way to find joy at work. Join host, organizational effectiveness consultant Jeff Pelletier each week for God's Work in Progress. The purpose of this program is to help integrate the excellence of faith and work, to bring life, light, love, excellence, and the power of God into the workplace where it has always belonged. Tune in Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. My guest today is Chris Keller of the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College at Fort Belvoir in Virginia, and he is talking with us about the German-American element in the Civil War, particularly the 11th Corps of the Army of the Potomac, which fought uh, so disastrously at the Battle of Chancellorsville in May 1863. Uh, we began talking a little bit in our last segment about how uh, about the Germans as an ethnic group in the United States before the Civil War. And Chris, what, one thing that struck me, the comparison you made in, in our talk and also in your book, uh, to uh, Hispanic Americans today, that there you have a, a, a large and growing ethnic minority with its own language, its own political interests, and with a substantial block of uh, non-Hispanic Americans who regard them as a political and economic threat. Uh, is it safe to say the Germans were regarded by, by Anglo-Americans in that way in the 1850s? It would be, and uh, at the risk of uh, uh, putting in a little presentism here, uh, there was uh, an unquestionable concern among uh, Anglo-American leaders uh, in this know-nothing or American party, as they like to call themselves, uh, that uh, the foreign element in the United States was uh, bent on taking over uh, the uh, the political institutions of the country, uh, and they uh, were forsworn to a political war against that possibility, and uh, uh, captured quite a few state houses uh, in the 1850s, and for a while it looked like this nativist know-nothing party was going to be the replacement for the dying Whig party of the day, and become the great rival to the Democrats. Uh, of course, we know that the, the Republicans ended up subsuming the know-nothings, absorbing many of them. Uh, but the threat of, of nativism politically never left the American landscape. It just kind of went under the surface. And uh, the German-Americans, for their part, never forgot this uh, close brush that they had with uh, nativism in the mid-1850s. And... Uh, when it starts to come back in the Civil War, uh, there is a great deal of alarm that very quickly spreads among the German-American communities of the North. Now, one of the things that, that wartime experience does, uh, according to, to at least some authors, is enhance the, the Americanization process, the assimilation process, by 
Uh, and everybody listening to the show has seen the movie Glory uh, three or four times, I'm guessing. I know I have, uh, in which uh, the experience of African Americans fighting for their country uh, changes the way uh, the way Euro Americans look at them, and changes the way they look at themselves, and makes them citizens. Uh, German Americans immediately uh, enlist to fight for the Union when the war breaks out, but the question—but it's not quite so simple a question, is it? Uh, not really. It, it depended where you lived, uh, how long you had been in the United States uh, before the war broke out, uh, what your uh, socioeconomic situation was, uh, and uh, a lot had to do with uh, what I call the agrarian-urban split. Um, the vast majority of the more recently emigrated uh, German immigrants uh, lived in the, the large cities uh, of the north, uh, Philadelphia, uh, uh, Pittsburgh, um, New York City, uh, Cincinnati, Milwaukee, Chicago. And there in those cities, they had created before the war, as did the Irish for that matter, uh, their own ethnic conclaves, uh, or enclaves rather, that were uh, little Germanys, as uh, some authors have, have likened them. And uh, you've heard the term little Italy. Well, there were little Germanys at the turn around the, the 1850s into the 1860s. Even the whole way up uh, to World War One, these neighborhoods existed in, in our great cities. And if you were in one of those when the war broke out, there was a stronger likelihood that, that I discovered in my research that you joined one of these uh, ethnically German units uh, and uh, uh, marched forth among ethnic kin and, and neighbors uh, and uh, experienced the war more as a German rather than as an American. If you lived out in the country, and, and some of these uh, German immigrants did go out into the country to take advantage of uh, the uh, the land that was offered at the time by the federal government and various uh, programs, uh, then they would join the local regiment, whatever that might be, and in that case, they tended to gravitate to their own separate companies that were ethnic within an overall Anglo-American regiment. And we know that about 70%, 75% of all Germans who, who fought for the Union served in these mixed regiments uh, that were predominantly Anglo-American, and 25 to 30% served in the all-ethnic regiments. Uh, but I think it's interesting to note that the vast majority of, of German-Americans lived in the urban neighborhoods and not out in the uh, countryside uh, at the time. And so the concentration of Germans in these, uh, in these cities was, was high. And uh, then they experienced the war, I would argue, as, as Germans first and as Americans second. Well, a couple things struck me when you're describing the recruitment of these regiments, and I've I've looked a little bit at, at the German regiments in the West and writing about the Army of the Ohio, uh, where you have the 32nd Indiana, the 9th right. Ohio, and some others. The uh, one thing that really struck me was the, you write that the average age of the German soldiers on enlistment was 29 years. Right. That's 10 years older than than the average uh, soldier. And that's true, and uh, that represents research based on the uh, primary regiments from Pennsylvania that were composed of immigrant German soldiers. Uh, I didn't look at New York, but I have a very strong suspicion that we're going to find a very similar number. Uh, these men were older, uh, Jerry, and they tended to come in uh, to the Army with more life experiences. Uh, a high percentage had actually served in Europe in uh, one form or the other, 
in either the 1848 revolution on the uh, revolutionary or on the the autocratic side, one or the other. Uh, a lot of them also had been in uh, various uh, German um, shooting societies or in the Turnverein before the war. They were experienced men and knew how to handle a rifle, most of them. Uh, and they, they often had families, uh, so they had a lot to lose when they enlisted uh, to uh, support the, uh, uh, the, the president's call for troops. There was an awful lot of ethnic pride that went into that, uh, a lot of uh, competition with other ethnic groups, and as I argue in the book, uh, definitely a concern to prove their loyalty quote-unquote, to the rest of America, that they were as good as, as anybody else and that they, too, uh, would serve to defend the flag. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of interesting angles to think about here with these, these German regiments being formed. One is, of course, that you said they think of themselves as Germans first uh, and American second to a degree. Uh, uh, certainly some of the, in some of the regiments, German was spoken as the primary language, but there really is no Germany at this time. That's uh, correct. How does that affect their, their cohesiveness? Well, at this point, uh, Germany is, is not yet unified. It is a collection of uh, various principalities and states, some stronger than others, such as uh, Bavaria or Prussia. Uh, I found that there is a, a pretty good mix uh, of uh, uh, state background among uh, these Germans uh, whom I researched. Uh, the big thing was, in the Civil War, the background of the various uh, uh, German soldiers started to become insignificant. Uh, during the war, before the war, where you were from mattered in these various German enclaves in these little Germanys, and Prussians would stick with Prussians, and Bavarians would stick with Bavarians, and Bodners with Bodners, and so forth. They tended to form the regiments, uh, from various neighborhoods within the little Germanys. And then uh, you would find, uh, you know, a certain percentage would be higher from one state as opposed to another. But that distinction melted away in the course of the war as the German regiments tried to uh, recruit simply anybody that spoke German or was of direct German descent. And my research indicated that what mattered more for these men was whether you were a German, not whether or not you were a Catholic from Bavaria in the south or a Protestant from Prussia in the north. It was far more important to be uh, a German than it was to be from one of the various states. So in some ways, uh, the, the Civil War made the Germans aware in this country of their nationality, but only vis-a-vis what they were not, which was Americans, and the resurgence of nativism had a lot to do with that. Now, what about politics? Were the Germans? Uh, you mentioned that the, the Know Nothings arose as in the after the collapse of the Whig Party. Uh, the Know Nothings then disappear, and the Republicans become the, the second party. Right. Uh, do, do the German immigrants uh, find a home in either party? They do. They find homes in both parties. Uh, the Democrats had a slight majority uh, of the, the German vote uh, in 1856. Uh, and uh, in 1860, it depends on which author you read, uh, some of the older ones are still claiming uh, the old line that the Republicans won the majority of the German vote in 1860. 
I'm personally convinced that if they did, it was a, about a 51 or 52 percent uh, uh, majority. Uh, the Democratic Party had traditionally been the home politically of uh, the immigrant. Uh, the Irish are almost democratic to a man. Uh, the Germans were very democratic initially. And then the longer that one stayed in the United States, uh, recent studies have shown the greater the likelihood that you may have gravitated to one of the other parties. So the, there was something to, to say here about length of time in, in the country. Um, we do know that in 1860, uh, there were many Germans, particularly in the Midwest, who voted for Lincoln. Uh, we also know that in 1860, there were uh, just as many Germans in New York and Philadelphia, especially, who voted against Lincoln. Uh, and then in 1864, it gets even more interesting with uh, the Fremont uh, Party, but maybe you'll ask about that later. <laughs> well, when these Germans then enlist, they they might be from different parties. They might be from city or town. They might be from you know, Württemberg or Baden or Bavaria or Prussia or wherever. But they they have the German language in common and and, and some German cultural elements. Uh, uh, in the Western regiments that I've looked at, uh, there was a beer ration that the uh, the Anglo regiments didn't get. Correct. Uh, in the East, they had it too uh, until it was taken away in 1862 officially by the uh, War Department. Uh, they still got their black or brown bread uh, throughout at least the middle part of the war. It's interesting, after the um, the officially sanctioned beer ration was removed, there was a strong tolerance for sutlers bearing intoxicating beverages uh, to visit the German regiments, and it was sort of winked at by the commissary department. Uh, the interesting thing is after the Battle of Chancellorsville, um, Oliver Otis Howard bans uh, the sutlers from camp, and the beer uh, was taken away, uh, what restricted access they already had had to it. Uh, and uh, this this cultural aspect was significant because this was something that made the Germans feel a little special and made them feel like they had something extra. It did generate some some antipathy from uh, non Germans who thought that the Germans were getting preferential treatment. Uh, and uh, you know it depended how you came down on this, Jerry. If you wanted a free drink, then you were in support of the Germans getting their beer, particularly if you had a friend in one of these regiments. Uh, if you were a teetotaler or if you uh, thought they were getting too much uh, preferential treatment, then uh, you were glad to see them lose their privilege. And temperance is a, a very hot political topic at the time, too. So it's not just personal preference, but, it, but it's... Uh, oh, absolutely. And, it, and it, it, it fed right into the nativistic agenda. Uh, temperance... Uh, Anti-foreignism, uh, 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 all these things uh, were were very much wrapped around the same kind of idea of of uh, uh, you know keeping foreign elements and and uh, disfavorable people from gaining positions of power or any kind of influence. Uh, there was a great strong anti-Catholic uh, tinge in uh, the years before the Civil War, which came roaring back in the war, too. And the fact that about half of the German immigrants were Catholic, uh, of course, didn't help the situation. I'm going to push things along because I realize we won't even get to Chancellorsville. This is just fascinating stuff. But when the war begins, the, the soldiers in the East uh, form these regiments. They, they, they form them themselves. They, they become part of the army. Uh, but then the army organizes the regiments into brigades, divisions, corps. Uh, how, how do we end up with all the Germans in the same division? 
done done purposefully. Uh, there was there were requests from ethnic politicians uh, and also from some of the the German officers themselves in 1861 to put all the German regiments uh, in in one giant block. And it took a while for the federal bureaucracy, the army bureaucracy, to uh, percolate this and think about it. Uh, and ultimately, the request was granted, um, and we think it was uh, McClellan, who was then commander-in-chief, who finally allowed it to happen. And uh, nearly all, not all, but nearly all of the German regiments in the Army of the Potomac were consolidated in one division uh, at the very end of 1861. Uh, that was Blenker's division under Ludwig Blenker. Uh, and uh, they stuck pretty much together uh, until the aftermath of Gettysburg, and it was from Blenker's division that we see the core element of the later 11th Corps emerge. So a lot of these same regiments have been brigaded together. They were in this mainly German division uh, before the 11th Corps came into being, uh, and uh, so they've known each other a while, and they've been fighting together. So they saw action as, as Blenker's division, as the Germans. Yes, they did. It crossed keys against none other than uh, elements of Stonewall Jackson, Stonewall Jackson's command. Uh, they had a very torturous trek across three Virginia mountain ranges uh, in the very early spring of 1862. They were allotted six ambulances, uh, not enough food, and literally starved to death uh, on this trek to join Fremont in his attempt to bag Jackson in the Valley Campaign. Uh, and uh, the German soldiers really started to feel slighted during this this uh, this trek, that they were not given a lot of respect or a lot of consideration by the War Department. Well, they will certainly feel that way after Chancellorsville, and we'll get to that in just a moment. We're going to take another short break. My guest today is Chris Keller. We're talking about Chancellorsville and the Germans. I'm Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. German-Americans fought for the Union in the Civil War. They felt they gave everything to their new country. Many of them felt their country did not give back. We'll find out how that happened when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Looking for a good time? We've got a show that will give you a wild ride. This show will make you feel good. And it's not even bad for you. You need your time to let loose. It's time for a feel-good party. Pull up to the computer, mix yourself a drink, and turn up the speakers. Happy Hour is here. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. It's called the biggest radio show in the world. Hosted by international personality and pundit, Michael DeMarco. You don't know what's coming next. The biggest radio show in the world on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. 
listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Chris Keller, author of Chancellorsville and the Germans. We've been talking about the German-American experience in the Civil War, from the nativism that immigrants experienced, the anti-foreign prejudice that they encountered in the 1840s and 50s, through the mass enlistment of German-Americans in 1861 in the Union armies, uh, to the formation of an all-German division under Blenker by uh, 1861 and into 1862. And we're uh, approaching now, we'll go at warp speed to the Battle of Chancellorsville. Uh, Blenker uh, is eventually replaced. Uh, the the very important person of, of Franz Siegel uh, will have to leave out just momentarily, maybe come back to him. Uh, other than to say the Germans idolized him and, and wished he could be their leader. But when we get to uh, May 1863, the Army of the Potomac, now organized under Joseph Hooker, has uh, the 11th Corps consisting of many German regiments, but under the command not of, of Siegel, not of a German, but uh, Oliver Howard, the uh, a, a a temperance man, a, a uh, evangelistic Christian, not somebody culturally sympathetic to the German immigrants, uh, and they don't—they don't seem to like him very much. They—they <laughs> uh, they were very unhappy with uh, the change in command. Franz Siegel, their their darling, who had uh, represented up to this point in the war the beau ideal of a German American leader, and uh, for whom this this. Uh, famous cliche came out, I fight Smith Siegel, uh, which German soldiers said with pride, uh, and it was uh, already being somewhat lampooned in Anglo-American circles. Uh, Siegel was removed, and uh, there's a reason behind that that has to do with uh, political squabbles. Uh, he felt slighted by the War Department because of uh, uh, some uh, failures uh, to have some of his subordinates promoted. It was uh, not the first time he had resigned in a huff to try to make a statement, and uh, uh, Edwin Stanton and Abraham Lincoln would not allow him to get reinstated when he begged to get put back into command. So Siegel's gone in February uh, 1863. They put Howard in. The response to Howard among the uh, uh, the German colonels in the 11th Corps was, was very poor. As, as one eyewitness said, they all made very long faces when they were first introduced to him. And uh, they couldn't even get three cheers up for the new commander. Uh, Howard, in his autobiography, wrote about how he traveled among the, the German regiment's camps uh, not long after assuming command. And uh, the soldiers would even lampoon him from their tents, saying, tracks now, tracks now, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, the beer is gone forever, uh, you know, no more sauerkraut, you know, statements like this. Uh, and he could hear it, and uh, he couldn't understand German very well, but he knew what the sentiments were. And so we've got a command here that uh, uh, has a commander that they didn't really want, and he's a little distrustful of them uh, because he doesn't know them well, and uh, there isn't a, a good stage being set here. Well, they they have to go into battle then with this unsatisfactory situation when 
Hooker launches the the offensive that will become the Chancellorsville campaign, and uh, the listeners, uh, I think, all will have a a mental map of what's going on here. He crosses uh, the river uh, to Lee's side, who leaves at Fredericksburg, gets around behind Lee's left flank. It looks like he has staged a brilliant uh, maneuver that will will win him the battle. He's facing his army facing toward the east uh, and somewhat toward the south, where where Lee is. Uh, he's not prepared for what happens next, which is that Lee detaches Stonewall Jackson. Uh, Lee violates every rule that I'm sure uh, your tactics courses teach uh, at the college, uh, div- dividing a smaller force in the face of an enemy. He divides it multiple ways, leaves some at Fredericksburg to face Sedgwick, some uh, facing the main body of Hooker, and then Jackson is detached to go around uh, south and then west and uh, come back from the west and attack the the farthest end of the Union Army, the, the right flank, uh, way out to the west in the middle of the wilderness, all exposed there. And, of course, that's the 11th Corps. Uh, right. Uh, what happens then? <laughs> Well, again, this is where it's interesting being a historian because it depends on the accounts. Traditional Anglo-American accounts uh, that were propagated primarily from the New York City press, which uh, had correspondence at Chancellorsville, uh, where Joe Hooker's headquarters were, they saw uh, a bunch of fleeing uh, Union soldiers from the 11th Corps running back into the clearing uh, of Chancellorsville, panic-stricken, having thrown away their knapsacks and their rifles, many of them speaking German or screaming in some sort of uh, foreign language they didn't understand. Uh, And that is uh, uh, the impression that uh, those correspondents tended to uh, write about in the immediate reports after the battle, not knowing that the 11th Corps had actually put up uh, three successive stands uh, that I've discovered uh, in their attempts to halt this juggernaut attack of Jackson's. Uh, they were outnumbered approximately three to one, and uh, I'm not a believer in the overwhelming numbers thesis uh, necessarily, but uh, we do have to just take a look at the numbers here, and uh, these guys are really facing a disadvantage in uh, the, that department. They're also deployed uh, in a way that uh, does not uh, give them an awful lot of chance to resist uh, Jackson has uh, about a mile and a half front uh, as he hits the very end of uh, the uh, the Union line there, the 11th Corps, and uh, there are only two regiments facing to the west to uh, to meet this uh, onslaught. So it's it's really a, a, an unfair fight in in so much as deployment and numbers are concerned. Um, there are great questions uh, that uh, arise uh, in uh, the course of my research about who's to blame for why the 11th Corps was positioned so poorly, why it was not ready for this attack. Uh, I discovered a lot of German language accounts that indicated that uh, scouts from the German regiments had discovered Jackson's men forming up, had gone back to Howard, to uh, Division Commander Devins, even to Joe Hooker, and had uh, asked for permission to realign or to report their findings, and they were brushed off. There's even an argument that Devins was drunk. Uh, some of his Anglo-American regimental colonels uh, came in, and we do know this from several English-language accounts, and uh, said the same thing, that they were about to get flanked in an overwhelming way. Devins brushes them off. We know that uh, Hooker gave Howard an order to realign or to at least expect some sort of possible attack from the West. 
though there was a great belief at the time in the Army High Command that the, the Confederates were retreating. So it's, it's my belief that uh, Joe Hooker really didn't hammer that hard enough into Howard's head that there's a shot that they might get flanked to prepare for that eventuality. We also think that Howard may have uh, really not taken the spirit of that order very seriously, uh, perhaps taking a cue from his, his own uh, superior commander there. In any event, uh, the 11th Corps is slammed very hard, and the, uh, the division on the far right, which is the 3rd Division, uh, or the 1st Division, rather, is, is, they're forced to run, and there's no way to really make a, a better light of that. Um, for maybe about 15 minutes, elements of McLean's Anglo-American Brigade stood up and fought, uh, but they didn't have a lot of chance to realign themselves in the thick woods. Uh, this is very wooded terrain, very hard to get a good line put together, particularly when the enemy's on you. And uh, they were forced to retreat uh, very quickly after taking heavy casualties. Most of the other regiments had, had run in this division. Uh, and it was those men that the New York press first saw, by the way, running into Chancellorsville. Then there were a series of other stands. And uh, those other stands that uh, took place near the Wilderness Church and then later along what I call the Bushbeck Line near Dowdle's Tavern, which is where Howard had his headquarters, each stalled uh, the Confederates about 25 minutes. And this is before daylight savings time. Jackson got his attack off late, uh, Jerry, so we're talking now a situation where every minute is precious for Confederate uh, chances for, uh, for victory. And uh, if they're going to bag the 11th Corps or, or really, as Jackson had hoped, crush Hooker's army, they need more time, they need more daylight. The 11th Corps, I argue, put up as good a fight as they could and did manage to stall Jackson's attack long enough to buy time for the rest of the army. So as, as soldiers, as regiments, their, their performance was uh, no worse than any other regiments could have done under the same circumstances. Is that your that, view? That is my argument, and that's the argument of even many Anglo-American veterans of the battle. Uh, if they had spoken up a little bit more uh, strongly uh, at the time, perhaps some of the denunciations of the, quote, flying Dutchman at Chancellorsville in the Anglo-American press would not have been as, as severe. Uh, but after the war, uh, a lot with the passage of some time, a lot of Anglo-American veterans even said not even Napoleon's old guard could have stood up against this kind of assault in such conditions, uh, as unprepared as they were uh, in their uh, positioning. Uh, but if you look at the regiment's uh, battle casualties, you go to the National Archives, look at the regimental books, and you see where these regiments were located. If they're on the extreme right, they have higher numbers of casualties, and with the exception of McLean's brigade, uh, not that many uh, dead and wounded. As you progress further down the Orange Turnpike, as you get closer to Chancellorsville, and you move further in on the 11th Corps line, you start to see higher numbers of dead and wounded. That indicates, in my opinion, uh, regiments that have stood and fought at least for, for a time. And uh, there were some regiments that uh, suffered especially grievous casualties, uh, about 40 to 50 percent casualties in the Hawkins Farm Clearing, which is near the Wilderness Church, uh, 82nd Illinois, 26th Wisconsin, Midwestern German regiments that were n newly attached to the 11th Corps. This was their baptism by fire, and uh, they absolutely paid a heavy price, and they stood and fought. Now, just play devil's advocate, the 154th New York, 
suffered extremely high casualties. There was an Anglo regiment uh, that has been intensively studied by Mark Dunkelman, who's been right. on this show. And uh, he reports that the men of the 154th uh, did write uh, some rather uh, scathing letters home about the, the Dutch behavior after the battle. How do you account for that? Well, that's a great question. I've actually looked into that uh, to, to some degree. The 154th um, had not had a lot of time um, attached to the 11th Corps before this battle. They had been... I believe about five months uh, with the 11th Corps. I might be off by a few months there. And they hadn't gotten to know these Germans as people. Uh, they just knew them as foreigners who served in regiments that they happened to be brigaded with. Uh, comments by men of the 154th near Fairfax uh, Courthouse uh, in late 62, uh, going into early 63, uh, indicate uh, that uh, these guys didn't really like serving with these uh, these Dutch but they didn't have a chance to really get to know them before the battle and, and before they went into winter quarters. Uh, and uh, uh, also, you know, they really uh, were uh, in a position along the Bushbeck line where they took a very heavy punch from Jackson's assaulting columns. They suffered very heavy casualties, the 154th. And as any soldiers would, I think, after such a, a uh, incredibly uh, punishing uh, battle, they're trying to explain why their comrades died, you know, trying to find reasons for this, and particularly when the battle ended in defeat. And I think they, just like uh, many others uh, who weren't even at this point in the battle, tried to explain why there was a defeat and why so many federal soldiers had died or been wounded. Uh, and uh, they were looking for uh, a scapegoat, looking for a reason, and the Germans were a likely candidate. And in the 154th case, considering that they weren't happy to be brigaded with them in the first place and they hadn't gotten a chance to know them as people, I think that might have a lot to do with, uh, with uh, their reactions. Well, scapegoat really is the key word for the aftermath of this battle. The, uh, uh, the northern press blames the Germans. Uh, there's much more we could say. Uh, the music playing tells me we are unfortunately out of time already. Uh, but this book, Chancellorsville and the Germans, subtitled Nativism, Ethnicity, and Civil War Memory, uh, is a really fascinating account of how, uh, not only how the Germans fought at Chancellorsville, it is a great tactical account, but also the aftermath of the battle and how it affected the assimilation of German Americans into American society, uh, and how they uh, kept their, their memory of this, this painful moment alive. Uh, and their German ethnicity separate and, until World War One, really, when when it's not fashionable to be German again. Uh, Chris, I would love to talk more about it uh, at great length, but we can't. So I just want to say thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much, Jerry. It was a pleasure. And listeners, you'll want to get a copy of this book, Chancellorsville and the Germans. I know you'll enjoy it. And thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.